things I could have done differently. I think one of them would have been is to be even mentally calmer, more patient through the crises. I think the first time, you know, a launch doesn't work or the first time your demo fails or the first time you run out of money or the first time a key employee quits is just the first time you deal with something which is significantly adverse, you know, difficult, it, it really crushes you as a founder because you're not used to that. So obviously the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth time becomes much easier. And then at some point your mind gets more equanimous to the stresses and strains. I would have told myself that, look, there'll be a lot more failure than there'll be a success before the eventual success comes in. So be ready for that along the way. Don't let it bother your head so much. It's all part of a, a video game. Welcome to Prime Venture Partners Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to build and grow their startups. Learn about uncommon strategies and common traps from makers and doers of startup ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Prime Podcast. My guest today is my good friend and I'm so delighted to have with me Tushar Vasisht, co-founder and CEO of Healthy Me. Welcome Tushar to Prime Podcast. Shripadi, it's such a pleasure to be uh, chatting with you on a podcast uh, instead of our usual actual fireside conversations uh, <laughs> that we've had since almost 15 years now, since Aadhaar, I believe. Um, you know, um, So very a big pleasure of mine to be here. Absolutely. So let's, let's launch off right away. Yeah. So um, what was the inspiration for Health? Um, well, um, as you know, it was driven by a personal experience uh, more than anything else. When I joined Aadhaar along with you and others, um, I, you know, come back to India after almost nearly a decade abroad and I just ballooned up in size. I gained a lot of weight. I gained some, you know, 25 kgs of weight while helping the government build Aadhaar. And I realized that, you know, and while initially I was beating myself about it, when I kind of looked around and I read the stats, turns out I wasn't the only one. The whole world unfortunately, has become an increasingly obese and overweight place. Uh, we as humanity have gone from being um, a malnourished civilization for the first time. We've gone to becoming an overweight civilization. You know, from less than 900 million people overweight, we became two and a half billion people overweight or obese um, in the last 20 years. So Homo sapiens have Whoa. predominantly been a malnourished society, but now suddenly one in two Homo sapiens are overweight or obese. And, um, and, and, you know, so it was driven out of personal experience. And as you know, I was able to lose all that weight, uh, become a lot fitter, you know, two half marathons and, but I've struggled with weight since as well. And, um, you know, one thing that became abundantly clear is that there are tools and solutions that are needed and that people will need, um, to manage their lifestyle, their metabolic health and fitness. And, you know, it's reversible. It's not a one way street. Initially, I did that by calorie counting myself. Um, and then figured that, um, you know, other people deserve to use tools um, as well, which allowed them to track their lifestyle, metabolic health and improve it. So that's the that that's how, I guess, inadvertently and serendipitously, uh, we started Healthify Me. The other backstory is that I was living on 100 rupees a day and at the poverty line, if you remember, after Aadhaar and uh, before I started Healthify Me. And actually, at that income level, we couldn't eat any non-Indian food. So that's when. So what we was the motivation forced... of that? Just, uh, just to give a little bit of context for our listeners here. Well, um, you know, so when I joined Aadhaar, clearly that was to help the average Indian, um, you know, and but I felt like I was doing it from a, a glass wall. 
you know, we used to travel in air-conditioned cars and government guests stay in government guest houses. So it wasn't really giving a very, I wasn't empathetic enough to the average Indian. So as I exited Aadhaar, I figured before I get on to do what I want to do, let me go and live like the other half. Um, so go live at the average Indian income, go live at the poverty line and see what an average Indian, what choices and constraints one feels every day. And at that income level, um, you know, I couldn't track any of the food in terms of nutrition that I was consuming because Indian foods database didn't exist back then. So we so started me crafting a little bit of a subtext here because you, you chose 100 rupees per day because that is the official of poverty line, correct? Actually, 100 rupees a day is the average Indian income. It is the median in Indian income per person, X of rent. So with rent, it's 133%. was see. 133 rupees. X of rent, it's 150 rupees. And X of rent was about 100 rupees per person per day. Um, and, and that's where kind of the 100 rupees came out. And then 32 rupees okay. was because that is the poverty line um, okay. definition. That That's what the government determined as the poverty line definition. Got it. Okay. And so how was that so, experience? Um, it was actually quite eye-opening, honestly. Um, you know, we were, uh, <laughs> we, we had, I, I wrote extensively about it, uh, but we realized that there are some very real constraints that people face at that income level. You know, like, uh, obviously, one of the core ones was that you cannot get enough protein in your diet, particularly as you start shifting towards 32 rupees a day. The only thing one can really afford is carbs. Unfortunately, the government also subsidizes only carbs, rice, wheat, and sugar. So we are intentionally converting our country into a diabetic population. Intentionally. That was quite a shocking realization. Um, on logistics and travel, one can't travel more than five kilometers radius effectively um, at those income levels um, because the cost of transportation ends up being too high. So you're kind of living in a bit of a prison, which doesn't allow for job opportunities, mobility, etc., um, so many, you know, that how uh, insurance is largely driven, but is, is a huge problem, uh, health or life in urban societies, because in rural societies, we found that at least the village acts itself as a social, social insurance, community insurance is there. Uh, any adverse effect is taken off by the wider community and you, know, you kind of pay people back. But in, in urban environments, there is no absolutely no air cover for any adverse event. Um, so I can keep going on and on. There were so many. We, we studied addiction. Mm -hmm. We studied uh, nutrition. We studied um, energy, uh, you know, and every day we'd go out and kind of talk about it. But the nutrition bit was interesting because the, we realized that people couldn't track protein. And the only way we, way we could realize it is to, first of all, compute how many carbs and proteins and fats there are in Indian foods. And that led to the birth of a calorie counting Excel um, so we were first to create an Excel to track Indian foods and its calorie values and micronutrients and macronutrients by just searching on the internet and wherever in niches in corners we could find that information, we would put it into an Excel. Um, and, uh, you know, I was anyway used to the form of calorie counting. I'd use that to lose my weight right before then, but it was in a Western diet form. It wasn't for an Indian diet form. And that's when we were forced to create the first version of an Indian calorie counter in an Excel. Um, and that's when we came up with these various insights for the government and for others. And uh, subsequently, when we started, when we exited that experiment, we started looking around as to what company to really build. Um, a lot of people actually started to want that Excel uh, to count their own, uh, you know, calories and proteins and fiber and whatnot in various forums that we would communicate. So initially, we would uh, we gave that as a as a Google Sheets 
and then it was actually a prime ventures partner um sanjay swami who said man why are you giving it as a google sheet give it as a website you know it'll help it'll help you also run some analytics as to who's using it who's not how many people but yeah you know that's a good idea maybe we should convert it into a into a website and uh, it was actually i tell you where it was at the rotary some rotary event he had organized back then so mm-hmm. um and you know and then slowly that website turned it turned into a mobile app and then we raised our angel round and and that just kind of got the whole spire you know that that just got that <laughs> that snowball moving and you know 10 11 years later healthify is what it is today so tell me like what is healthify today in terms of its product and then i'll we'll I'll delve into uh, you know what are some of the observations from that so healthify me is a is a solution to drive behavior change that then improves metabolic health obviously allowing people to lose weight get fitter or reverse their medical condition as a consequence of that and the way we drive this behavior change is through uh through three things we have a free app that people can download and use that to measure their own lifestyle aspects around their diet exercise fitness sleep and stress and we have a team of 1000 coaches uh, that people can use to accelerate their journey of behavior change you know these are people who keep our customers accountable provide diet and fitness plans and strategies and do regular monthly weekly connects to engage and motivate our clients and finally we have a series of connected hardware equipment uh, that you get as free as part of uh, different subscription tiers that you buy with us um you know these are uh, connect continuous glucose monitors connected smart scales blood work that we run to understand what's happening inside your body and how can we improve that with an evidence based solution we also have a, a strong ai practice underlying our coaching behavior um, our large language model was called ria um that helped our coaches be very efficient and effective at what they do and uh, subsequently we've opened that as well as a low cost subscription offering the pure play ai offering so um, to give you a sense of scale you know we do about 40 million dollars a year today and we've got a quarter million paying subscribers half of the paying subscribers use our ai only service the other half use some form of coaching human coaching combined with the uh, iot or hardware integration uh, meanwhile we have about 3 and million or so monthly active users who use our app for free uh, to get benefit from it so uh, going back right uh, how was it is such a counterintuitive thing uh, to get people hooked on to a behavior change inevitably every health law you know weight loss plan requires right uh, and it is such a daunting thing to do so when we think of uh, when i'm talking to an entrepreneur and it is a consumer play which healthify me is you always uh, are concerned that driving behavior change is a such a tough thing to do so did you face that in your early enough yeah for sure i mean i think you know driving this behavior change is basically going fundamentally against evolution to an extent right like evolution has trained our mind and body to consume more energy when we see energy you know particularly if that if it is sugar and fats which are high burn kind of quick energy consumption you know we rush towards it that's why we all love desserts um and exercising is something our bodies are tuned to deliberately not do because we're trying to conserve energy mind you until 20 years ago we were a malnourished civilization since we were created a quarter million years ago um it just things have changed now and our body evolution is not keeping in tandem with that change in terms of overabundance of immediate food um 
So it is a fundamentally hard thing to do. Having said that, there are well-established practices and principles that allow for that behavior change to happen. Uh, the first aspect of all of that is knowledge. Um, you know, so if you if you are able to see having a mirror, right? If you're able to see what that what that food or fitness or exercise is fundamentally doing to your body, and the more real time that feedback is, the stronger your behavior change happens. So, in the first time you track a food on Health Defined, you get a sense around the nutrition, protein, fat, carbs, fiber. You kind of get a sense around. Oh my God, I should probably have less of this and probably have more of that. And uh, and then by uh, you know, the other way to keep a strong behavior change is by establishing good, smart goals. Um, you know, so these are highly measurable, accountable, result-oriented goals that you can set for yourself. Smaller goals that you're small also is an important piece. So not lofty, tremendous goals, but small, measurable, accountable goals that you can keep to get better every day that allows for behavior change. And then finally, even our coaches play a huge role. So, you know, left by ourselves, I think we often die. Our motivations are short-lived usually. But when you have an accountable person, um, you know, we think of our coaches as your personal health board that we hold you accountable, that hold you accountable to your goals that you're set, right? But now it results in a tremendous uh, change because now you have someone that you actually uh, are held accountable by and you engage with. So I think our coaches play a very strong role in, in tying it all together and then driving that behavior change. Uh, AI can do that too, just not as effectively. To give you an example, an average paying subscriber with us loses about between five and six kgs of weight um, within a period of 180 days will probably improve their HbA1c and cholesterol count values by more than 15%. Um, and AI, a subscription also enables to do that, but probably about two thirds of the way. So about two thirds of that result AI is able to deliver. But the human plus AI is kind of what really takes it to another level. Uh, this is getting published in a in a fantastic Stanford paper that's currently under peer review about the efficacy of human and efficacy of AI and efficacy of UI, human plus AI and how that works with our customers. So uh, it's it's a cool thing to look at. Where are your customers uh, coming from? So I have really two questions here and let me ask both of them. One is that, you know, acquiring customers, right? So I'd like to get your thoughts on like, how much of a challenge was that for healthy family, and uh, how do you actually acquire the customers? Because going B to C direct is such a tough task. Uh, that's one. And the second one is that uh, I'm looking at the 250,000 paying customers and a million uh, users. You said uh, Tushar, who are actually using the app. Uh, uh, three three million, but yes, three million users. So, what is the composition of that? And does that tell uh, tell uh, you know tell us a little bit about you know you know where this product healthify me is the most effective you know so ours is a classic case study of a b2c premium model you know where we've basically the reason we were able to acquire efficiently is because we have this in really good strong highly rated free app that creates a strong funnel um you know for us so a lot of people come and engage with us and that's what we meditated on a lot for a few years so the first three four years were just in building a great free solution that people can engage with and find lots of value in. And then we started our monetization levers on top of that, except for just monetizing via ads, because at that time, certainly there was not a strong enough ads-based revenue model that was evident in India. But we started monetizing that by, by a model that would further accelerate our consumers' journey towards their goals and towards their behavior change objectives, right? which was the human coaching component. So... That's how we were able to acquire, and that's how we're still able to acquire consumers efficiently. Because our cost of acquisition 
from a customer's vantage point is really zero. The customer doesn't have to pay anything to start engaging with the Healthify brand and its product and its and start to see that change. Um, now, you know, and and then in that journey with us, we're able to then monetize that by selling them to our either the 200 rupees a month AI service or the 2000 rupees a month coaching service or the 4000 rupees a month coaching with a bunch of integrated gadgets. Um, you know, we call it Healthify Pro service, et cetera. But the genesis of it was having a free app that also allows for good LTVs in the business because once you're done with your paid subscription, you don't have to completely churn out and forget about us as a brand. You can continue the free journey with us all the time. So our, our free app is a tremendous source of engagement as well as of acquisition. Um, and uh, in terms of where customers come from, well, you know, if I were to show you a map of how the family user base, it's, it's very analogous to a night sky map of India. Um, it looks exactly like that. So we'd like to believe wherever there is electricity, there is health family today, largely. It comes from a long tail of users. Um, I think the top 10 cities power up about half of our customers in revenues. And then the long tail powers up the other half. So it's not just a metro-only phenomena. It's a, it's a pretty wide phenomena. And in fact, we solve for a lot of access to quality coaching, access to quality knowledge and information in those markets and areas uh, which don't have it otherwise. Not just like a tier one, you know, SECA, all right. It's like a uh, customer profile. You think that it actually goes deeper? I think the SECA, A plus, uh, possibly B plus is still, I think A and A plus is probably still the customer profile. But it's just that A and A plus is also divided quite a lot mm. in the long tail. It's not that it only exists in tier one cities. I think wherever there is SECA, A plus, Health of IME exists for them quite well. So while it is still a little bit more upwardly mobile, top tier income levels, but it is spread out in a lot of long tail cities and towns and even villages at times. So AA plus, maybe even B plus territory uses Healthify quite efficiently today to be able to track their lifestyle for sure. Obviously, conversion rates are slightly richer in the top cities. They're slightly depressed in the lower cities. But there are exceptions to that trend also that we see. Let me actually change uh, attacks a little bit and uh, ask you about your journey from a, a fundraise standpoint. We've spoken about it in the past. We have talked about it, which is that it was not a smooth sailing, right? From where you uh, at 40 million ARR, which is obviously very substantial. So you have talked about a number of like near-death experiences <laughs> in the life of Healthify Me. So tell, you know, take us through a few of those cycles. Yeah. I mean, look, I think... Um, if there's anyone who's tuning in, who's like just at the early days of starting a company, you should probably know that um, you are going to run out of money at some point or the other in this journey. And I, 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 I know, Angel Invest also myself recently, <laughs> and I often tell my portfolio companies that, you know, the first time you run out of money is a good rite of passage. You can kind of check that box and, you know, feel <laughs> comfortable and happy that you're off that. You know, you can kind of, that's one of the milestones, you know, you need to cross just like you need to cross a couple of other key milestones um, and mark that date, smile, feel happy and, you know, get through it because it is going to inevitably happen. So plan psychologically for it. But, you know, we, the first time we had it was pretty scary as well. I mean, you were, you witnessed it. Uh, we talked about it as well at that time of, of raising capital. And, you know, in, in hindsight, obviously, I know both of us wish that we had joined hands back then. Um, yeah. But in 2014, 15, I think two, three years after starting the company, we didn't have a revenue model. We had a great app. Very high engagement, strong product metrics, good quality. In fact, we were rated by Google as the best app of India in 2014. 
Um, but in 2015, late 2014, but same simultaneously, we had we couldn't really figure out a way to monetize. So we were struggling with that that lever, and we were talking to various investors as well, and and this was a common feedback that we were getting. But I, you know, and um, but once we were able to start to monetize, when people start to see the revenues trickle in, um, it was easy to establish uh, a case for fundraising. Yeah, the first time we were out of money for about three months, um, and you know, it was a difficult one. Um, and I remember telling my employees once that, hey, uh, you know, you're all volunteers at this point. So if you'd like to continue volunteering, I'd appreciate that. And once, if we get funding, I'll make it whole for you. But if we don't, then I don't know. I'm trying my best, but I can't promise. I can't, I, we can't pay salaries. Tough conversation. Thankfully, everybody stayed. People were really passionate about the mission. And I think everybody genuinely was having a great time working together. So they're like, we don't really care about doing anything else. So three months in, we were able to secure our seed round. Um, so we had an angel round for Crore in 2012. 2012. And then we had a seed round of a million dollars roughly in 2015. You know, and 2014 was a very tumultuous period because there were two, three term sheets that were, we got, but we couldn't complete. Either the terms weren't good or they were withdrawn or that we couldn't convince ourselves, but we were able to land around 2015. 2016 was our Series A of uh, 6 million, where Chirate Inventus Bloom joined in. 2018 was our Series B. Uh, led by Samsung, Sistema, and a few other people. And then 2021, we had a large TVC. Um, it was actually a combination of our, some of the capital we had raised in 2019 as a convert note, plus an equity raise that we did. So that was a $75 million total round. This was co-led by Leapfrog and Kosla Ventures. And a bunch of other, you know, the Saudi PIF guys, Elm joined, and a few other partners joined from different parts of the world. Um, Unilever and, and others, et cetera, et cetera. But um, that was a large round of CDC. And, uh, you know, and uh, since then, that's been going well. So we had one pretty, we, we, had, we went, uh, you know, sort of minus three months in 2014. But even during series A, we kind of came close to the wire. I think we were a few weeks out of cash, maybe like two or three weeks out of cash. Um, and, and series B, I think we were, you know, we were probably just like two months away or something. Uh, of running out of cash but after right. that it's been easy like you know after that it's been relatively easier cdc we had a few months to go and and now onwards i'm assuming we'll always have a few quarters to go at any given time before the next round kicks in if at all it's easier to manage financially with scale it's harder to do so when you don't have a significant business model um so yeah and it's it's kind of very common for, to run out of money how do you deal with that situation, right? I mean, you have, as an entrepreneur, you have vested, you know, so much emotionally. Forget the, uh, forget the financial uh, investments, and you have folks you are working with, and all of you are excited. So, uh, while it is true that you know uh, most startups will face uh, kind of the other financial crunch at some time in their lives, in their in their journey. How do you say you deal with it? What would you recommend in terms of just when you're, everybody has left the office and you're actually still working? There's no way to sugarcoat it. It's a very tough experience to go through, without a doubt. Um, having said that, if you, there are ways you can be ready for it. You should be aware that the company can shut down at any given time. Anything that you do might be the last time you're doing it. So knowing that you know, uh, death is a reasonable possibility helps. That when it comes, it's not like a complete shock. Um, that, you know, complete shutdown is a decent possibility. 
second piece is that running out of money does not have to equal death. Uh, so being aware of that is also important. So I think when you run out of money, a few tricks and tips in that thing was if your co-founding circle itself has all the relevant and complete skill sets um, to run a firm, that really is valuable. And perhaps as you scale, at least your sort of leadership core has should ideally have that set of core skill sets. That really helped us. Um, you know, like I, Sachin and I would often joke that, yeah, if, you know what, if everything goes to zero, um, you and I can still kind of, the minimum number of people required to run Healthify is <laughs> between you and I, we can kind of manage. You know, and and we used to do, we used to say that till like shockingly late, right? Like well past our series A, uh, that if it really came down to the bone, we got this. So having that uh, com- comprehensiveness in the skill set is important. If you feel like that skill set resides out to a core leadership member, maybe even consider getting that person as a co-founder. Um, that, that's good. And then or and or keeping the leadership enough infused with stock options, equity, and purpose that people stick around when it, the going is really, really tough and then reward them for it. So they'll stay loyal with you for the long time as well. Um, so I think because you have those relevant core set of people who will stick around and stay with you uh, and you prepared them that listen, and, you know, oftentimes you joke about it. Yeah. You know, we used to have these like plan A, B and C plan A is to do this plan B is to do that. And plan C, may, there was always that plan C that was very clear amongst this core group of people that this is a little bit of a, you know, put your shell on and power through things like that. Uh, in fact, us running out of money was brilliant because it gave us the necessary hunger to pivot to find revenues. You know, and, and if you may remember, even in our conversations back in the day, one of the core things we were talking about is, uh, and I still remember it, is the how do you get to 100 paying customers a month? Uh, yeah. uh, and you know, that was an important part of our journey that we needed to have the focus to get to 100 paying customers a month. So, and that focus also is really valuable in those times. I remember there was this period when everybody was a salesperson for those like two, three months. So, including every last engineer, customer support, coach, me, everyone, like we're all trying to sell because we're trying to dig ourselves off that grade. And that was a very valuable thing. It kind of taught us what, uh, you know, what the company, it kind of created that, that necessity created that invention of, uh, of a business model. So being prepared for it. Um, handling it well, see, seeing it as an opportunity for a possible innovation to come through is very, very helpful sometimes. It's quite uh, cathartically innovative to be in that zone. Same thing happened during our Series B when I was, I was looking at a very short runway and I was not sure what's going to happen. And I realized that now the company's at a stage when it's not like just me and son, Sachin can run it or we can turtle it down. And, you know, I needed the, it was very critical for us. So that kind of, forced us to, we all locked ourselves up, but the top 10 people into Royal Orchid actually for a week. And we all like lived together and brainstormed around how can we use a strong tech solution that can change our margin profile? Because now it was all about margin because that's how RIA was born. Literally the first version of RIA was written at the Royal Orchid with a few people. Um, and I freshly minted, I like took it for a spin to a bunch of investors and literally Samsung was one of the guys who kind of came through. And yep, we see this. So I think being close to that edge actually can be quite quite, quite a uh, motivator to drive some very necessary innovation. That's a good point. I think it uh, comes across as very, uh, very preachy when we say that 
uh, well, you know, too much money can harm a company, but it really can uh, because then the motivation to do and drive some of the changes required in the company, as you uh, as you mentioned, are just not there. Uh, yeah, and I think particularly at an early uh, stage, once you have the PMF, once yeah. you've got your unit economics geared up, I mean, then you could really use the capital. But until then, I agree with you; it can harm the company sometimes. Exactly, and if you can use the crisis to actually not be paralyzed, but really double down on razor focus, addressing the problems which you're hearing, which are coming between you and getting a uh, the investor in. Yeah, is what you have done in in uh, in the two cases that you mentioned. So well, precisely. Uh, so if you were to uh, if you were to like back ten years and advise your twenty something self, uh, you know, uh, who's starting, raring to start a health tech company, what would what should an aspiring uh, entrepreneur today who's interested in health tech think about? You know, this is a question I get asked often, and I feel somewhat, being very brutally honest, I feel a bit flummoxed about it because I'm not sure what I would tell myself. I mean, frankly, my honest answer will be like, listen, just do you. You're doing well. You know, just do you. Be good. But um, but if I had to take a crack at things I could have done differently, I think one of them would have been is to be even bitly calmer, more patient through the crises. I think the the first time, you know, a launch doesn't work or the first time your demo fails or the first time you run out of money or the first time a key employee quits is just the first time you deal with something which is significantly adverse, you know, difficult. It, it really crushes you as a founder because you're not used to that. So obviously the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth time becomes much easier. <laughs> so and then at some point, all of you know, you kind of your mind gets more equanimous to the stresses and strains. So I would have. I would have told myself that, look, there'll be a lot more failure than there'll be a success before the eventual success comes in. So be ready for that along the way. Don't let it bother your head so much. It's all part of a a video game. You know, it's like a Mario. Sometimes you see a mushroom. Sometimes, you know, you some duck comes and gets you or whatever, right? Like you you kind of have to, you, you know, and, and you, you get a few tries at it. So don't worry about it. Um, so that would have at a at a mental level. At a professional level, I would have probably told myself to spend and invest on something I'm telling myself even now is to invest a lot more of my time in hiring and maintaining good talent. So uh, I think I certainly have been a case of somebody who takes talent for granted in that sense to an extent. But listen, you're here, go figure it out. It's a startup. And 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 I and I don't think I and I think I wait for serendipity to hit me to hire. I don't I'm not as aggressive and as deliberate about hiring and culture as I probably should be. Um and probably certainly should have been. I think I've gotten a lot better over the last few years, but I should have been. Um I would have told myself to think even more ambitiously um and aggressively about my uh, about my company than I did. There are pros and cons. If I had thought more ambitiously and aggressively, I might not have had the patience to get here. But at the same time, I do think that um, Nandana had once said right, that think big because it costs the same to think big or think small. So think big. Mm-hmm. So now finally we have a clear mission statement just to healthify a billion. But I wish I had thought with that premise much earlier. And uh, And I would do things faster. Easier said than done, but I think I was, uh, I think my pace now in hindsight was excruciatingly slow. 
Oh man, if I had to start my life, you got a lot like, less money to work with, by the way. So. You know, I did, but I, I just had lesser awareness, and I guess that's a lot. That's a problem of an ex- of experience, right? So I was just less aware about um, about what pace you can really move at. Uh, now that I've tasted mm. that, for example, if I ever ever had to start something again, or even when I do things now, it's just um, it took me about two, three, four years to kind of get my groove of pace. But I think I could have done that much faster at that time. Like, don't wait for solutions to be created. I mean, why? That now, the first, anytime you want to innovate, the first thing we often ask is why. And when I talk to my angel companies as well, I'm like, why do you need to code for this? You shouldn't be coding. You should not be coding to get your PMF. Right, code after you've mm-hmm. kind of gotten at least a sense of PMF, pivot, iterate super fast. So yeah, those are the things I would have probably told myself back then. Fair enough. Which are the areas in healthcare that you're most excited about? About new innovation, new opportunities. You know, without a doubt, right now, large language models. Um, I think GPT and LLMs are going to fundamentally reshape uh, technology, um, reshape businesses, and to an extent, reshape human civilizations in in a big way so i think there's just a lot of opportunity there in practically every domain and i'd really love to see what kind of innovations people can do in health tech we are ourselves working very seriously on it um, but it'll be great to get that uh, perspective uh, to get that knowledge to see how that people are able to make sense of using llms and emergent ai technologies so you know i remember in the last 10 years i've seen a lot of technology hypes and cycles and faps coming up Right. There has been the crypto madness, there's been the VR madness, there's been IOTs that was once talked about. And oftentimes these were treated as deep tech and AI was kind of in that picture somewhere. But in my opinion, none of the other technology stacks have scaled or are going to have any meaningful large impact on healthcare. But I think LLM is huge, particularly in health tech. Why? Because healthcare at its core is an advisory service. At its core, right? Like we are, while there's a, and, and it's an advisory service based off of a lot of prompts. That's what a doctor does. That's what a nutritionist does. That's what a trainer does. That's what a, you know, that's what anybody does. You get a lot of prompts in the form of diagnostics or data or systems or lifestyle. And then you provide specific actions and or in cases, motivation or knowledge or content that you provide on basis on prompt. So that's why I do think it's like ripe for LLMs to really be disruptive in a very large way. And um, I do think that now is the time for consumer meets healthcare in a very large way and the world as well. Because, you know, on one hand, you have 3 billion people who are obese. On the other hand, you've got AI technologies that are making access extraordinarily affordable. And you have cost mm-hmm. of collection of data and prompts is very low. All of us have smart gadgets, device systems that are generating a lot of data. So. You know, Andreessen Horowitz just uh, took a nice paper out talking about how they believe that the next trillion dollar company is likely to be a health tech. Uh, and and mm-hmm. their words were consumer health tech play. Um, and, and because of these trends, and, you know, I for sure believe in that. And, and so it'll be interesting to see how people navigate their ways towards that using AI and a bunch of these new emergent tech. So, so Tushar, as we come towards the end of our conversation, there's a couple of more questions, right? Uh, so uh, one, this is uh, a really uh, tough time right now in the startup funding ecosystem for uh, 22 and continuing in 23 with uh, funding levels down and actually startup formation also down. Uh, so if you're an entrepreneur, what would your sort of uh, two cents to them? 
I think it is stage dependent. Um, you know, if you're a sort of at the minus one stage where you're thinking about jumping and doing something, I would say the time is right. It's brilliant. And it's always right, frankly, to take the leap because you have to go through a journey of discovery, of figuring out, of doing, you know, initial pilots and beta studies before you can even get to doing something, right? And um, I do think that, the, you know, one should not regret anything in life. And um, if you don't do something, you're likely to regret. If you do something probably not much of a regret and if at all then today's ecosystem would appreciate and reward you for taking that risk and you know other serendipitous paths will come as a part of doing that like you know my wife neha just started wobble and you know she's just closed her angel round and it's in, it's amazing to see her growth in the sidelines in the last nine months from what six six months since she started the company to blitzing through so much of experience knowledge and awareness uh, which i i didn't see in the two years prior to that, when she's working with a large firm. I think for them, the right time is now. And uh, and I think angel raising is not that hard. It's more perennial as well. I think it is still individually driven. So I, I, I don't think there we are seeing any much difference. So get into your initial and your angel investments is possible, is doable. India has an incredible angel investor ecosystem now, which it didn't have back then. So I would say absolutely it is right now. In fact, it is now because by the time you'll be ready to take any reasonable form of VC capital or growth capital, markets would be back. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, a, you, this is the best time ever. I think the greatest companies were built in recession and um, some had read some stat. For more senior founders, people who are at like the A or the B route, it's definitely a difficult one, a difficult time right now. And even for the C, I think everybody should look at conserving uh, cash, conserving runway, and having enough breathing room. It is good to plan for, uh, you know, default on or default alive status. That means that within whatever cash you have, we use that to practically get to a point visibly where you can kind of become profitable if you have to. So if you, you know, you already have high conviction in your game, you've built something decent, you have a PMF, you kind of have the unit economics sort of figured out at a scale, I would say. Preserve, conserve cash, look at more organic forms of growth right now. Um, consider doing experiments in new areas because you have luxury of time and you don't have, probably don't have, or align your board for not having strong pressures on growth right now. And once you have that pressure off of you, de dedicate that towards innovation and new discoveries and new initiatives that can give you disruptive pathways when you, when markets come back. So yeah, that's how I would make sense uh, of of the current environment and uh, yeah, broadly basically a lot less noisy, right? As as entrepreneurs uh, uh, go about both discovering their business models or growing their business models uh, yeah. in times like this, there's a lot less noise and less uh, of marketing dollars being spent. So you can actually do it a lot more efficient growth. And let me close with this uh, for the future of Healthify Me itself, Vishar. So what are the next? What is next for Healthify Me? in the immediate term and perhaps in the in a four five year horizon oh this is a phenomenal time i'm very excited about being at healthify today because i think we look we've established an india leadership position a market dominant position here uh we've had a cumulative user base of 35 million that have joined our system to who we have access to and who we can get back to and who trust us so in india we're thinking of how we can diversify um you know and and obviously grow our current digital uh, you know, uh, fitness and fat loss subscriptions, but also diversify into areas of uh, condition management, disease reversal, um, see if we can add uh, connected stacks onto it, like healthy foods, like supplements, snacks, staples, 
you know, mm-hmm. or or other connected areas which can allow for our promised delivery be that much stronger. I, I can see a line of sight towards India becoming a comfortable $100 million business in the next couple of years. Uh, think through, you know, O2O kind of models of growth, even beyond online growth, etc. Um, and continue to hold the leadership position here. While at the same time, I'm now beginning to evaluate internationally. We did a small pilot in Southeast Asia. We're quite inspired by that, even though COVID kind of put a little bit of a shadow on it for a couple of years. But now we're looking at Middle East quite seriously. Um, and, you know, because if we have to help the 5 billion, then eventually we also have to be a global company and have to be relevant mm-hmm. and present in other markets. Our product today, from a tech stack standpoint, is probably superior to anyone in the world. And our pricing is the most competitive. And there are inorganic, partnership-driven, and other ways that we're thinking of grappling the uh, global markets as well, taking a stab there. So I think this is a great time to acquire companies um, in the market. And, and we're looking at M&As quite significantly, both in India and abroad. Um, eventually, the goal is look to nest, to obviously have the 5 billion, but to ideally build a company that's at least a few hundred million dollars in top line in the next you know five years or so. And somewhere in that journey, look at going public um and uh, uh or or you know or, or look at other alternatives and uh i i'm excited about what those five years will include indeed uh and all the best uh for an exciting future for healthy family and in your quest to healthy five billion and thank, thank you. you for joining us Prashal. of course absolutely been my pleasure as always um catch you soon enough Shibu. Listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app for free and you'll be the first one to know when new episodes are available. Just search for Prime Venture Partners Podcast in Apple Podcast, Spotify, CastBox or however you get your podcasts. Then hit subscribe. And if you have enjoyed the show, we would be really grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcast. To read the full transcript, find the link in the show notes.